0: Hey, nerds, I am Will Wheaton, and you are hearing me talk. It's Friday, May 22nd. According to the whiteboard, I have been in some form of stay-at-home self-isolation for 81 days. And for those of you who are new to this, uh, a couple of times a week since we started staying at home, I have been reading and narrating audiobooks for free, and here is one of them. Um... I started doing this because I wanted to rediscover my own creative path. I wanted to find my way back into being a writer and to do that I needed to be a reader. And to be a reader I kind of needed to give myself uh, a little bit of a task to do that just because of the way my mental health works. So uh, I made this choice to read uh, stuff that I've never read before, stuff that I probably never would have come across uh, if I wasn't actively looking for it, and then just share those narrations. These recordings are never edited. They're not cleaned up. There's background noise. I make mistakes. Uh, In this one today, (laughs) I'm reading from a scan that's in this weird little reader at the Internet Archive, so it kind of looks like a little book. It's pretty cool. Um, But there was a weird kind of like just Java behavior here, um where the uh I am I was trying to move the page around So I could keep reading And the thing got stuck And it's very weird It breaks the mood um, But for me That's kind of part of the fun of this If I did this very seriously And I uh, like stopped And I started And I edited And I did all that This would be work And I don't want this to be work I want this to be fun Hopefully when it is fun for me I'll feel like I can do it Whenever I want to And that's great Because I haven't I was sort of doing these Like almost every day And I kind of gave myself a Mental health Uh, break to to work on it. Um, So uh, let me tell you about uh, today's uh, audio narrative. Um, I really, really wanted to check out some mid-century detective pulp fiction. So I went to the Internet Archive and I went to the Pulp Magazine Archive and I found an issue of Master Detective Magazine that was published in September of 1947. The story is called Alibi Girl and it is written by someone called Jack Nielsen. This is, uh, there's a little picture uh, on, on the page um, and... And there's a there's like a badge on it and it says a fact fiction story <laughs> um, posed by models. So I don't know if that means that this story is all fiction, and they pulled together things that had happened in various cases to make the story work, or if this is a fictionalization of an actual case that happened. It is the story of a couple of detectives trying to solve a murder. I had a really fun time with it. I enjoyed the story a lot, and uh, I did some character voices, which I don't usually do, but I did some character voices and Letting these characters live in me for a few uh, words at a time was super fun and super satisfying. So I hope that you enjoy it, and I hope that wherever you are, you're happy and healthy, and I'll see you next time. Enjoy the story. Alibi Girl by Jack Nielsen. When Jackie Foster was murdered, men of the 3rd Detective District were not surprised. They had expected it one time or another, ever since the gambler began to swell from acute delusions of grandeur. But when Big Bill Cobbett came into the headquarters building at 1 a.m. to confess to the murder, the detectives were distinctly startled. It isn't like Big Bill, remarked Detective Edward Wood. He's the type who doesn't give a hoot if his boys get mauled up in the ring as long as one Big Bill Cobbett pockets the profits. His partner, Detective Tommy O'Connor, nodded wordlessly. They walked without further remark to the inspector's private office. The desk man signaled them to go in, and they opened the door. Sitting uncomfortably in a hard chair in front of the desk, flanked by two silent detectives and with a stenographer behind him, Big Bill Cobbett presented a sorry sight. In everyday life, he was unprepossessing enough. He was huge without the grace and rhythm of a tall athlete. He sported a paunch. He had a pale, colorless face, and his lips were too thick and too sensual. Now he exhibited a distinct shiner on his right eye. His nose was bloody, his torn shirt and tie were blood-stained. His thinning hair was like a ball of snarled-up grayish-black wire. Big Bill Cobbett looked at the two incoming detectives without greeting. He turned to the inspector and whined, "What the hell could I do with Jackie's gorillas getting ready to gimme the works? Wait, meek, wait meekly for the party? Oh no, not this bird! I thought maybe Jackie'd listen to reason, so I'd go to his place in just a minute." The inspector interrupted. He waited for Wood and O'Connor to draw chairs closer to the desk, and he said, "At the beginning, please. Why did you kill Jackie Foster? Tain't my fault," Corbett said. "It's an accident." Jackie attacks me and I got to defend myself, see? So why should Jackie Foster attack you? The inspector demanded. Search me. Jackie and me, we ain't been no friends since the Philly job. Know what? The inspector said nothing. Corbett went on. We fix it so my boy gets KO'd by Pete Rico. He's Fred O'Reilly's kid, see? Well, Pete, he's such a tomato to my boy, can't help KOing him instead. Jackie loses five grand in bets and holds it against me. Go on, the inspector invited. Well, Jackie, he takes his revenge. He tells other fight pilots it ain't going to be healthy for them to do business with me, and I ain't had none for a couple months. Then Jackie lets it be known that he's going to put me on the spot. Out of the corner of his eye, the inspector saw Wood nod, confirming the Jacobs Jacobs Beach, Madison Square Garden gossip. Cobbett continued, I think maybe Jackie and me, we talk it over like reasonable men. So I go to his place, but Jackie ain't in no mood to listen to reason. He attacks me. I grab something. I don't remember what happens after that. Next thing I remember, I am holding a lamp in my hands and Jackie is down. He is bleeding to death. What time was it? The inspector demanded, studying Big Bill intently. Midnight. How do you know? The inspector asked sharply. There's a clock in his room, see? Jackie lies between the clock and me, so I can't help seeing it. Sure it was midnight? Sure as my name's Big Bill Cobbett. The inspector leaned back and inclined his head to the door. Okay, take him away. A detective escorted Cobbett out of the office. After the door closed, the inspector turned to Detectives Wood and O'Connor. Your job, since Jacob Beach, is your beat. Lend homicide a helping hand, and it's mutual. They ought to be at Jackie Foster's place by now. Got his address? Detective Wood nodded. Yes, sir. That's all. The two detectives rose and left. A passerby seeing the Wood and O'Connor come out, a passerby seeing Wood and O'Connor come out of the third detective district headquarters building at West 54th Street would have been struck by the contrast between the two men. Wood it was five feet ten, somewhat on the plump side, with a ruddy complexion and sharp blue eyes. The latter were the two trademarks of a cop who had spent years pounding the pavement. He wore a neat blue serge suit. Detective Tommy O'Connor was a silent man who preferred to think first and then talk afterwards. He was short and wiry with an angelic face that was somehow miscast. Bulldog-like features would have fit better. He had a capacity for work and for infinite punishment. As Jackie Foster's apartment was in a modernistic hotel a few blocks east of the station, the detectives dispensed with Wood's blue sedan. They took the elevator and got out at the 11th floor, which swarmed with police and plain clothesmen. Homicide squad detectives, including technicians, had taken possession of Jackie's apartment. Since the medical examiner's tour man had not yet arrived, the detectives did not touch the body. However, police photographers were already busy and a detective artist was surveying the murder room for the cross sketch. Jackie Foster was laying face down on a rich carpet. A lot of furniture had been knocked down and bits of bric-a-brac were scattered on the floor. Presently, the medical examiner's tour man arrived and, after nodding a greeting to him, Detective Wood continued to study the room. The heavy armchair beside which Foster's body was lying was standing upright. However, there were some clear spots around a thin layer of dust on the carpet. Undoubtedly, because of its heavy mass, the armchair had been thrust aside rather than overturned. O'Connor saw the clock first and called Wood's attention to it. It was lying face down on the carpet in front of one of the legs of a small coffee table. Bits of glass crystals were scattered around it. Since it was quite close to the body, the detectives had not yet picked it up. A homicide squad detective met Wood, who told him about Cobbett's confession. A homicide man frowned. Seems to fit, but... Really? Internet Archive? Sorry to break the mood, everybody, but I'm trying to use this document to read this story. And my mouse somehow got stuck to the page, and the page got all effed up, and all right, okay, we're back in it. Sorry, everybody. Let's get back into our mood. Seems to fit, but it don't jive in one detail. What is it? The Homicide Squad man pushed his gray hat upward. Gobbit told the truth when he said the murder weapon's a lampstand. It's a swell job with an onyx base. There's blood on the base, but it's been wiped clean of all fingerprints. Wiped clean of fingerprints? Wood repeated. Yeah, the guy who does that wouldn't confess, would he? No. Meanwhile, the medical examiner's deputy and an intern had carried Jackie's body to a sofa. Wood and the homicide detective walked around to the overturned clock. The latter drew a handkerchief from his best pocket and spread it over the clock. Then he picked it up. He turned it around. It was a moderately expensive alarm clock that combined the decorative with the practical. Case was made of a plastic that tried unsuccessfully to imitate polished mahogany. The face of the clock was black, and the numerals and hands were painted with luminous thorium. The clock mechanism was dead. Its hands were frozen. And the hands pointed to 11 o'clock. 11 p.m. The homicide man turned sharply to Wood. What time did Corbett say he killed Jackie Foster? Midnight. He looked at the clock again. It don't fit. He's lying. Maybe. He isn't the guy to cover anyway. He thinks of himself first and always. The homicide man shrugged. Sure, Cobbett's a swell candidate for the hot seat, but the DA won't like this little discrepancy. I mean, Cobbett says he murdered Jackie Foster at midnight and this clock gets cracked up at 11. So what do you say about it? We don't say anything. Wood replied for O'Connor as well as for himself. We'll find out. The homicide detective nodded. Okay, let's see what the ME's got to say about it. They brought the problem to the medical examiner's deputy, who remarked, Offhand, I'd say Foster was killed between 11 and midnight, so it fits both versions. The detectives nodded wordlessly. He went on, Death caused by a blow on the top of skull with a sharp-edged instrument. The blow cracked the skull and severe cerebral hemorrhage followed. Either of those things is enough to cause death. The detectives thanked him, and as the homicide squad man escorted Wood and O'Connor toward the elevator, he asked, What sort of guy was this Jackie Foster? Detective Wood frowned. That's funny. We know next to nothing about him, except that he came from New Orleans and he made good. He was a big-time gambler. Of course, we buzzed the New Orleans police after we were interested in him. They say... They never heard of a guy named Jackie Foster. A Boy Scout from the Hinterland who became a bad boy in the Wicked City? The homicide man snorted. Hell, it don't happen in real life. All right, keep us posted. You do the same, please, Wood suggested. Sure. When Wood and O'Connor were in the street, the younger remarked, Well, it looks like we're in for it. It's got the earmarks of a long job. Wood nodded, sure. We'll start right now, beginning with the beach. Jacob's Beach, the capital of Beltham, is one of Manhattan's legendary spots. The geography of Jacob's Beach extends from Madison Square Garden across the street to a rowdy cigar store where a battered radio blares forth the payoff, not who is winning a mauling duel, but more important, the box office receipts. Detectives Wood and O'Connor began their tour of Jacob's Beach in the dark and dusty cigar store. Because of the late hour, there were few men in the store, although the air was thick with stale cigar smoke that had been studiously and ceremoniously exhaled during the fight crowd's working hours. One of the men was Frank Sullivan, the owner-operator of Sullivan's gym. Sullivan was tall and fat and slow-moving. Looking at his red face and hearing him wheeze whenever he climbed a flight of stairs, nobody would have imagined that he used to be a heavyweight trial horse. A bruiser on the come had given him such a devastating blow that he had been forced to retire from the ring under medical care. Now Sullivan was in a beaming and jovial mood. Since one of his boys had made a good showing in the Bronx prelims, he had cornered his bets. He nodded at the detectives amiably and offered them cigars. The detectives refused. Wood hinted, Maybe it'll be a lot better if we talk things over alone. Sullivan nodded. He led them to a corner of the store and waited for them to begin. Wood said, Know what happened to Jackie Foster? Got the dope over radio, Sullivan replied. I ain't surprised, no sir. He got it coming to him, see? And I figure it'd be Big Bill Cobbett. How do you know? Wood demanded sharply. Oh, tain't no secret no more. Big Bill and Fred O'Reilly make a proposition on a Philly show? Let me set you right. I ain't got nothing to do with the phony setup. I don't let them do that kind of business in my place, see? All right. They let Jackie in the secret. That's Jimmy Callahan. He's Big Bill's boy. Gets KO'd in the fourth. Well, you know what happened in Philly. "'That on the level?' O'Connor asked. "'Ah, you know Pete Rico ain't such a ham. "'Anyway, Jackie loses five grand, "'and he blames Big Bill of double-crossing him.' "'That isn't what I asked you,' Wood said. "'I mean, how do you know it'd be Big Bill who'd croak Jackie?' "'I got a pair of eyes, brother,' Sullivan said. "'I can see something's up when Big Bill comes to my place.' "'Let me see. Uh, it's 11. Yeah, remember it, "'cause Louie McGowan's man comes to "'and tells me his boss ain't gonna forget the tip I gave him.'" "'Wait a minute,' Wood said expressionlessly. "'Tonight?' "'Yeah. Big Bill comes to my place tonight. "'It was 11, as I said, and he wasn't looking his usual self. "'Nervous, like a guy who's hopped up to murder or steal, "'if you get what I mean. "'How long did he stay?' Ten minutes?' He looks around at the kids like he ain't interested, and he leaves. I think he came here. Continued on page 59. (laughs) Wood called the cigar store proprietor who confirmed that the page numbers in this viewer and the page numbers in the document are not the same. Confirmed Sullivan's statement. Sure, Big Bill comes here about 11.10. He buys a couple of cigars and he goes out with O'Reilly. Where's O'Reilly? In his place, maybe. Let me see, it's 3 a.m. Tain as usual bedtime till 4. Maybe you can catch him. Wood nodded. He entered the cigar store's single telephone booth and dialed O'Reilly's number. In a moment, he heard the answering call. Wood speaking. He said, "Wood," O'Reilly said. "Ah, I ain't done nothing illegal." I want to see you right away," Wood replied. "Right away. Give me ten minutes." Okay. Fred O'Reilly lived in a threadbare hotel at West Forty-fourth Street and Eighth Avenue. It was the type that charged a dollar a day for a room consisting of an iron bed, a dresser, and a hard chair. When the two detectives entered, O'Reilly's room had its hair down. Cigarette butts overflowed an unhappy ashtray and decorated the floor. O'Reilly was a scrawny man with watery red eyes, and he clamped the remains of a cigar between his yellowed teeth. Well, what do you want? I got my rights, he added. Sure, except in a murder case, Wood said dryly. Tain't my fault. Well... "'Who got croaked?' "'Jackie Foster, murdered by Big Bill Corbett.' "'O'Reilly sat down thoughtfully. "'Big Bill means it after all.' "'Will you explain?' Wood said. "'Oh, I meet Big Bill in the cigar store, see? "'He walks me to my place. "'He wants to do business with me, "'but I ain't gonna risk my neck with Jackie Foster around. "'He'd rub me out if I cross him, see?' So I tell Big Bill, he says, Jackie ain't going to be around no more. What time was it? Well, I know one thing for sure. I tell him he's got a scram at 1145 on account of I'm expecting a guest. See? So he scrams. What business did Cobbett want to do with you? What business did Cobbett want to do with you? It's about the Philly job, O'Reilly said. The phony setup. Business, O'Reilly said blandly. Just a business proposition. My boy gets KO'd in Philly first, then he wins in Chai. That's his hometown, see? Sort of like the local boy getting revenge with gallery birds rooting for him. Why'd you call it off afterwards, O'Connor demanded. Jackie Foster said he don't like it, O'Reilly replied calmly. So what can I do? I got to play ball with the right guys if I want to do business in town, see? Whose idea was the Philly job, Wood asked. Big Bills. Dumbest thing we ever did. Big Bill loses everything, and now he's going to stand a murder rap. How about you? Jackie raided my stable. Oh, well, I can build all over again, but it takes lots of time. Jackie didn't hold it out against me, on account I didn't make a big pile, just 3C. Wood said derisively, scared of Jackie? Sure, O'Reilly said without batting an eye. Besides, I figured I'd spread a grand around in bets when my boy gets a comeback in shy. Well, he ain't done. Well, he ain't done that, and I ain't got him no more. Woods, Wood shoved his hat back slightly. Who's Big Bill's current girlfriend? O'Reilly stared at Wood. Then he exploded into a loud guffaw. Well, if it don't beat the Dutch, you coppers ought to know better asking me that. Okay, Big Bill used to go around a lot with Flora, but she gave him the gate a couple of weeks ago. He ain't been going steady since. Has he got any special pal? O'Connor asked. Sure, one guy. Big Bill Corbett's in love with him, and his name's Big Bill Corbett, O'Reilly responded sarcastically. You get your boys back now that Jackie's gone west? O'Connor said. O'Reilly shrugged. Most likely, no. You see, Louie McGowan gets Jackie's business and adds it to his. Wood nodded. All right, that'll be all for the present. We'll want to see you later. You'll have to stay around. I'm in the cigar store most of the time. If I ain't there, you'll find me in Sullivan's gym. Got a kid training there, see? So long. The two detectives left O'Reilly without further word. In the street, they drew a sharp breath of air with relief, as if glad to rid their lungs of the musty smell of the distressingly sad hotel. It's a queer case, all right, O'Connor remarked. Wood nodded. Cobbett says he killed Foster at midnight, yet we know there was a fight to the death in Foster's place at 11, and Foster lost. In other words, evidence says he was killed at 11. That's when Cobbett's got a perfect alibi. O'Connor nodded and walked silently alongside his older companion. Then he asked, You were figuring on Cobbett shielding somebody? It's only a chance, Wood responded. How about buzzing Louis McGowan, O'Connor suggested. He's got a swell motive. He inherits Jackie Foster's empire. Foster was his best friend, Wood remarked. All right, here's what we do. We'll put Corbett on the pan. No, not now, but tomorrow afternoon. Give him time to think things over. If he's given us a song and dance, we'll catch him when he slips. Swell. The new day began bright and clear. However, it was one of those New York City dawns that promised too much and consequently become disgustingly wet. Thus, when Detectives Wood and O'Connor reported to headquarters, their raincoats were dripping generously. They told the story to the inspector who agreed with their tactics. He added, I think you ought to see Mr. Edwards. He's the assistant prosecutor who's handling the case in the DA's office. Because the streets were wet and slippery, it took longer than usual for Wood to drive to the criminal courts building near Foley Square. Presently, they were closeted in Edwards' office, and, after hearing the story, Edwards agreed to have Cobbett brought into his office. While waiting for Cobbett, Edwards fished a dossier envelope out of a desk drawer. He opened it and took out a wad of very colored tickets, which he gave to Wood. The detective studied them quickly. They were the kind of punctured complimentary tickets which fight managers give out to the right people if they expect to do any more business in a particular town. Each of the tickets was for a two-bit show in New Orleans from five to eight years ago. Wood passed the tickets to O'Connor without word and looked questioningly at Edwards. The assistant prosecutor said, "'Foster kept them in a safe box "'with a lot of greenbacks and negotiable bonds. "'Know anything about him? "'Wood shook his head. "'Jackie Foster was a mystery man. "'The New Orleans police don't know him at all.' "'All right,' Edward said, disappointed. "'Anyway, we've sent a wire to New Orleans "'about these fights.' "'Presently, a uniformed policeman "'ushered Big Bill Cobbett into the office. "'Wood noted sardonically "'that the prisoner had changed overnight. "'A gray prison shirt replaced his bloody one "'and his face was clean.' His shiner had stopped swelling and was already darkening. Edwards nodded at the chair in front of the desk. After Cobbett sat down, Edwards said, I've read your confession. There are several points I'll want you to fill in. However, I must warn you that anything you say will be held against you. Big Bill Cobbett nodded wordlessly. What were your motives? What were your movements before the murder? Asked the prosecutor. "'The movies,' Cobbett replied and paused with a grin. Then he continued, "'But I don't like it, so I leave early, see? "'I go over to Sullivan's gym.' "'What time was that?' Edwards interrupted. "'Sullivan's got a big clock in his joint. "'I stay, yeah, let me see, ten or fifteen minutes? "'Then I go to the cigar store. "'I want a couple of Stokies, see? "'I meet Fred O'Reilly. "'I go to his place for a drawing session.' He tells me I gotta leave by 15 to 12, so I do, and I go over to Jackie Foster's place. What time did you get there? Midnight? The rest of the questioning was desultory. Cobbett stuck to the midnight murder and repeated several times that he killed in self-defense. Finally, Edwards had the policeman take him back to the detention cells. Wood remarked, The chump! He'll be in the clear if he'll forget midnight! Then the telephone rang, picking it up. The prosecutor talked earnestly for a few minutes. When he hung up, he grinned wryly. We got an anonymous tip this morning, said Louis McGowan saw Foster after midnight and left in a hurry. I sent a man to check it. He's reported that there's plenty of confirmation. Good, Wood said, rising. At least we've got a new lead. Just a minute, Edward said. Any idea who the anonymous tipster could be? Fred O'Reilly? maybe he'd feel a lot safer with McGowan out of the way. All right, give me a ring. Right. Leaving the criminal courts building, the two detectives entered Wood's sedan just as it stopped raining and blue sky was beginning to show in the west. Wood drove the car northward through Center Street wordlessly. After a few turns, the car was on Broadway and continued due north. From Herald Square, the department store district, through the garment district up to 42nd Street, traffic became dense and Wood was forced to slow down. The car crawled through Times Square. At West 49th Street, marking the end of Duffy Square, Wood turned westward and parked the sedan near 8th Avenue. The two detectives got out of the car. They entered a saloon. Louis McGowan was there, sitting at the table, sitting at a table with his back against the wall. Where he was, he could see every man and every woman entering the bar, and thus he could act before others did. At the moment, he was transacting some business with different men, some seedy, others well-dressed. McGowan's physical appearance belied his dangerous reputation. He was a short fellow at 27, and he tried, in vain, to hide his physical stature with built-in high-heeled shoes. His eyes were cold gray, and though his pimple-scarred face made him rather unprepossessing, his mouth was full and soft like a woman's. He dressed so carefully that he looked like a clothes advertisement, but nobody laughed at his mania for men's fashions. He grew up in the West Side slums, Hell's Kitchen, and he owed loyalty to nobody but himself and to a very few trusted friends, one of them, Jackie Foster. McGowan nodded at the two detectives as they walked toward him. The other men moved away from the table, but their eyes were fixed on the detectives McGowan looked at them without bothering to rise. Wood let it go and sat down beside Louie. O'Connor stood behind his partner. McGowan waited for... the. It's doing it again. McGowan waited for the detectives to speak, but Wood did not oblige. Out of the corner of his eyes... The older Detective Samagowan began to fidget nervously and then the gambler said, Maybe it'll save you a lot of trouble. I ain't done nothing illegal. We don't want to talk about, we don't want to talk about you yet, Wood responded. We want to talk about your late pal, Jackie Foster. Jackie's affairs ain't none of my business. You can tell that hogwash to others, but not to us. Well, Jackie was a special pal of mine. He was a swell guy. We've played around a lot, that's all. You know a lot more, Wood challenged. For instance, how come he got bumped off? McGowan shrugged. Big Bill Cobbett sang, didn't he? What more do you want? We want to hear what you've got to say about it. For instance? Wood drew a deep breath. Did Jackie Foster know that Big Bill was playing him for a sucker? McGowan shot a quick glance at the detective. Maybe so, maybe not. You know, Wood said sharply. There was a moment of silence and then McGowan said, Okay, I ain't gonna stall. Sure he did, but that's all I'll say. I never stooled on nobody, even if he is dead. And I ain't gonna do it in the future. You won't talk? I ain't no stool pigeon. Woods smiled grimly. You've... Another thought coming. Listen, this is a murder case. We can always hold you on suspicion, and we'll be within our rights. Before your mouthpiece gets you out, maybe on bail, you'll be fingerprinted. You'll be in the lineup. Meanwhile, we can find out plenty about your private affairs. Then your boys will be thinking, maybe it isn't smart to play around with one Louis McGowan. And, of course, there are a lot of guys who will be glad to stool on you if they're convinced they can get away with it. McGowan's face was white, but he said nothing. Wood rose. He planted his hands on the table and leaned close to the gambler. We'll give you one hour to change your mind. If you don't talk, we'll take you in, understand? The gambler said nothing. Wood nodded at O'Connor, and the two detectives went out of the saloon. Then they grinned broadly. One hour later, Wood and O'Connor entered an expensive brownstone apartment house on West 51st Street, just on the edge of Radio City. McGowan was in his apartment, waiting for them, as they had expected. The gambler had to keep up a front in the public at all costs, because his was a dangerous game. A suspicion of squealing, no matter how innocent it may be, became a death warrant. In private, however, he was no different from a common grifter. He would talk plenty to save his skin. He only needed a chance to get out of the glare he only needed a chance to get out of the glare of limelight where hostile ears were wide open. After preliminaries were over, McGowan said, Sure, Jackie knew he was double crossed by Big Bill. Sure, you see? He was suspicious, so he put O'Reilly on the pan, and O'Reilly squawked plenty. He dished out all the dough he made at Jackie's expense to save his skin. What was O'Reilly's Hall? O'Connor asked. 5C, McGowan said contemptuously. He's always a small bit player. And Big Bill Corbett? Three grand. Wood interposed. There's a rumor Jackie put Big Bill on the spot. Did he mean it? Sure, he was gonna give Big Bill the works at the right time. You see, Jackie got a nasty habit of worrying his, his customers sick before shooting. One more thing. What would you have done if Big Bill didn't sing? McGowan looked sharply at Wood. Sorry, I don't like to get in trouble. We can always find out what you did when you heard Big Bill croak Jackie. We got our sources. McGowan was silent for a moment. Then he said slowly, Jackie was my best friend. Wood smiled mirthlessly. If that's so, then what the hell were you doing in Jackie's place after midnight? You found out so soon, Jim McGowan said. I expected you to anyway. Okay, listen, I was going to pay Jackie a social visit. No harm in it, is it? Well, I found Jackie croaked. I figured it'd be mighty unpleasant for me to stay, so I took a powder. But I ain't touched nothing, honest. The detectives did not say a word, and McGowan became worried. Listen, I got plenty of reason to lamb. Suppose I stayed and you bulls pinched me. Eh? swell chance I'd get to be in the clear with the papers screaming bloody murder about me. And citizens read the papers, citizens of the jury. So they'll be convinced i done it before my mouthpiece gets a chance to prove I ain't done it. Still, the detective said nothing. McGowan looked at them with his pale eyes steady. Anyway, you ain't got nothing on me. You see, I have a date at 11 last night. I, I-, I called for Ellen Arthur. She's a showgirl at the Drew Theater. I took her to a chop joint, Lin Fu it's called. Then I took her home just after midnight. She's a good girl, not like the malls I used to know. Wood said accusingly, How the hell do you know Jackie was murdered at 11 o'clock? McGowan looked at them sharply and his face was white, but he said nothing. Wood continued slowly. We didn't tell the press that Jackie was murdered at 11 o'clock. Nobody knows outside the police and the DA's office, except the murderer, of course. And you come forward with an 11 o'clock alibi without asking you. How come? McGowan remained stubbornly silent. "'All right,' Wood said. "'You've elected yourself number one suspect. Uh, "'You know what time Jackie was murdered, "'and you've uh, a swell motive. "'Got any objectives? "'Got any objections?' "'Yeah,' McGowan said, "'with a calm, almost fatalistic voice. "'I ain't killed Jackie. "'He's my best friend. "'Then how the devil do you know he was murdered at 11?' Then how the devil do you know he was murdered at 11? McGowan did not answer. Wood rose and said, Okay. We'll turn you in on suspicion. Don't do anything funny, because the DA and the boss know we're seeing you, understand? McGowan nodded. He put on his top coat and went with the detectives to their sedan. Fifteen minutes later, he was booked. Afterwards, Wooden O'Connor reported to the inspector, he suggested that they check McGowan's alibi so that if it were weak, he could be arraigned for murder rather than held on suspicion. The two detectives began with the Drew Theater. And McGowan's alibi proved to be as tight as Big Bill Cobbett's. The new confusion started to snowball when the detectives questioned the Drew Theater watchman. He knew Lewis McGowan very well since the gambler was a frequent visitor, coming almost every night for Ellen Arthur and taking her home. The showgirl was backstage preparing for rehearsals and her testimony checked with McGowan's, except for one minor detail. The show's over at 10.45, Ellen told them. That's when Louis always comes. It doesn't take me long to change clothes, so we must have left at about 11. What time did you get home? Connor asked. Five to 12. We don't need a big dinner unless we're planning to stay up late, but that's only Saturdays. The detectives thanked her. Since Lynn Foos was just across the street from backstage of the Drew Theater, they saw the manager. He said that Louis McGowan always paid a month's bill in advance. In this case, he only had to sign the checks. He looked up at last night's checks and found McGowan's. There was no time on it, though, but the manager promised to ask the night waiter. Wooden O'Connor left Lynn Foos in a daze. The murder complex was getting more and more complex, The murder case was getting more and more complex. Here they had two suspects, each with a beautiful motive for murder. Each man had been in Jackie Foster's apartment on the night of the murder. Big Bill Cobbett confessed that he had smashed Foster at midnight. Big Bill Cobbett confessed that he had killed Foster at midnight. The smashed clock showed that the death struggle had taken place at 11. To top it off, Cobbett had an absolutely unbreakable alibi for that time. Only the police and the murderer knew that Jackie Foster had been killed at 11. Louis McGowan knew, too. On the other hand, McGowan had a perfect alibi for that time as well. As the detectives walked toward headquarters, they continued to debate without getting anywhere. Suddenly, Wood stopped. He said slowly, "'I have it. "'The clock. "'It doesn't jibe at all.' "'What do you mean?' "'Say. "'Do you remember where it was lying?' "'On the carpet, of course.' "'Sure.' a thick carpet, but it isn't what I'm thinking of. Here's the point. What was the nearest piece of furniture? At first, O'Connor shook his head, and then he nodded. Got you, the coffee table. That's exactly the point. A coffee table is only one to two feet high, and the clock landed on a soft carpet. Does it make any sense? O'Connor shook his head. Wood went on. We'll check that. There's a telephone booth in that drugstore. The detectives entered the drugstore and found an empty booth. Wood dialed Spring 7 and gave the Homicide Squad extension. After he got an answer, Wood explained the latest developments. He added, Please look up the photos and cross-sketch. I want to know how far the clock was from the coffee table. And of course, how high is the table? In a few minutes, the Homicide Squad man answered, You're right. It does look like the clock fell off the coffee table, and it's only one and a half feet high. It landed on a thick carpet. See what I mean? It couldn't have been broken that way, Wood said earnestly. Obviously, somebody stepped on it. Agreed. Here's what we'll do. We'll get Foster's shoes and, of course, Corbett's and McGowan's. We'll examine them for glass particles. Thanks. I'll be down soon. As the detectives were only a block from headquarters, they reported to the lieutenant. Pretty good work, the lieutenant complimented. Mr. Edwards phoned and says he has an answer from New Orleans. Wants you to follow it up since you know Jacob's Beach. Wood nodded at O'Connor. Your job. Tell Edwards what we've found so far. I'll be in his office as soon as the clock angle's cleared up. O'Connor rose and left. Then the lieutenant said, Michael's got a hot tip. Fred O'Reilly packed up and lambed out of town. Does it mean anything? Probably not. I guess... I guess McGowan's boys found out that he tipped off the D.A., that's all. After that, Wood drove his car downtown to Center Street. The Homicide Squad captain had evidently been expecting him, for he left word for him to call at the laboratory. Laboratory technicians had just taken a, phyto, a photomicrograph, and as they had not removed the slides, they invited him to look into the comparison microscope. He did. He saw two fields side by side with jagged edges of glass enlarged several times, The crystal structures of the two samples of glass were absolutely identical. One set from the clock and the other from a rubber heel, the technician said. Glass particles embedded in that heel, I mean. Whose? McGowan's. The captain joined them and Wood talked to them for a long time. Then Wood said, I'm going to put McGowan on the pan. I'll make him tell the truth. The captain nodded. Case almost cleared. Right. The captain escorted Wood to the detention house and obtained an office for him. Then a uniformed policeman led McGowan into the office. The policeman left, but he remained on guard outside of the door. Wood offered McGowan a cigarette, which the gambler accepted. After lighting the gambler's cigarette, Wood said, accusingly, you've been lying. Lying like hell. What's the idea? My alibi? No. Wood studied the gambler for a moment. Now, Why the devil did you set the clock back to 11? McGowan sucked a sharp breath with surprise. How did you find out? What the hell do you think we took your shoes for? We didn't want them except to see if there was any glass in it. And I know what happened. You found Jackie Foster dead, as you told me. You were afraid you'd be suspected because people saw you come in. So you set the clock back to 11. You smashed it to make it look like your pal was killed at that time. While the detective talked, McGowan lowered his head and nodded wordlessly, and then Wood exploded. What did you do that fool thing for? McGowan bit his lips. You know how things stack up against me. There are plenty of guys who would railroad me into the pen on suspicion. That's what you think, Wood snapped. Listen, pal, you nearly got yourself a first-class reservation with a hot seat. What's more, your damn foolery almost got Big Bill Cobb at free. Do you know he confessed he killed Jackie Foster at midnight? Hell, you guys should never tamper with anything in a murder room. McGowan looked at Wood quietly and fatalistically. Well, what are you going to do about it? What am I going to do? Nuts to you. You're going back to jail to think things over. It's up to the DA. Maybe he'll let you go. Maybe he'll hold you for obstruction of justice. In that case, it'll serve you damn well right. When Detective Edward Wood arrived at Edwards' office, O'Connor was there, smiling. The assistant prosecutor asked Wood to tell his story and the older detective did. As soon as Wood finished, Mr. Edwards said, Before we make any decision, let's consider what O'Connor found. Mr. Wood, do you remember the complimentary tickets that Foster kept? Well, the New Orleans police sent us a list of fighters who took part in the bouts. In every fight, there was one Blackie Richter, and O'Connor thought it was a good lead. He went to the sporting publications, all right. O'Connor took a large photograph from the prosecutor's desk and passed it to Wood. The picture was of a fighter in the traditional pose. As the older detective studied the picture, he had it. Blackie Richter and Jackie Foster were one and the same man. "'It's perfectly clear now,' Wood said with a widening grin. "'Blackie Richter found that a gambler "'makes more money in the fight racket. "'That's why he came to New York. "'He changed his name. "'He never let others know he used to be a pug, "'hence a tool and a sucker for gamblers.' "'Then he looked at O'Connor. "'What was his class?' Lightweight, and he was a good one, and could have made the grade. Wood nodded thoughtfully. Edwards remarked, Corbett confessed the murder of Jackie Foster. He said he did it in self defense, and evidence seems to support him. Now, self defense killing is manslaughter, first or second degree, depending on how you look at it, and it carries only a prison sentence. Here's the point Does the new information change the picture? Of course, Wood said. The death wound, it's on top of skull. If Foster's reflexes were slow, then "'Corbett would have been a real case, "'but please explain,' Mr. Edwards interrupted. "'All right, consider the position of the death wound. "'If Jackie Foster was facing Big Bill in a fight, "'he'd have ducked, and there ought to be a blow on the shoulder, "'or maybe on the side of the face, to show in the ME's report. "'Well, we saw none, and I'm sure there's no mention "'in the ME's report either.' "'The prosecutor nodded, and Wood went on. "'That is, of course, assuming Big Bill hit Foster more than once.' Now, the death wound would fit well if Foster's reflexes were slow, but we've evidenced that Foster used to be Blackie Richter, a good lightweight fighter. Think of this. A lightweight is the fastest fighter in the ring. This can mean only one thing. Jackie Foster was attacked from the rear. Here, the death wound fits. From rear, on top of skull. In other words, it's a premeditated murder. Edwards objected. Cobbett had a nosebleed. The defense will certainly harp on it. Wait a minute, Mr. Wood, I understand what you were going to say, but I want to impress you with an important fact. It's my job to convince the jury. Well, a bloody nose and a mouse, that's a dead giveaway. Wood grinned, nodding at O'Connor. You got it once. Tommy O'Connor grinned sheepishly. I got sucked on the nose. It was in the gym, of course. Nothing happened except it felt a lot uncomfortable, so I blew my nose and got a swell shiner. There's a blood vessel running from the nose to the eyes. It's punctured when a guy gets a good sock on the nose, Wood said. Here's the way it worked. Cobbett socked himself on the nose. Then he blew his nose plenty, not only to raise blood, but to grow a shiner or two. He ought to know since he's a big fight manager. In other words, Cobbett's story blows up in his face. How about proving it to the jury, Edwards insisted. Don't forget, the average jury doesn't know. Oh, I can get a lot of pugs on the witness stand, Wood said. They'll all say they got blinkers that way in the sparring ring. All right, here's our case, Edwards said. Big Bill Cobbett knew Jackie Foster was gunning for him. He was determined to kill Foster first to save his life. In other words, he planned it, and that makes it a first-degree murder. He went to Foster's place around midnight. Somehow, he got behind Foster and crowned him. He wiped fingerprints off the murder weapon, the onyx lampstand. He had intended to flee, no doubt, but he remembered that Foster had a gang of strong-armed men. What was more important, Foster was Louis McGowan's best friend, and McGowan was alive to get him. Now, let me set this straight. Murderers don't think of everything until it's all over. Here's where most of them slip up. Cobbett was frightened. If he fled, he'd be followed and killed by McGowan's mob. If he gave himself up, he might be executed. That was his problem, which which was less dangerous to him. Then he thought of making it look like there was a fight. In other words... Murder and self-defense. He isn't any literate. He'd have read the papers. Murder and self-defense means only jail. That was his cue, and he acted. He upset the furniture. He wrecked the place. But in his haste, he forgot that he had wiped fingerprints off the onyx lampstand. A suspicious thing. Next, he inflicted wounds on himself. He went to the police station to confess he killed Jackie Foster in self-defense. Meantime, Louis McGowan came into the apartment and found the body. He was frightened because suspicion of murder was dangerous to him. So he set the clock back to 11 when he had a good alibi and smashed it. They put, Bill, they put Big Bill Cobbett on trial. They allowed him to repeat his confession, and then they proceeded to tear the defense's case to pieces. The defense lawyer fought valiantly. He hauled Louis McGowan on stand, but thanks to Ellen Arthur's truthful answers to Wood's questions... His alibi stood up. The lawyer only proved that McGowan had acted foolishly. The jury returned a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. Big Bill Corbett was sentenced to death in Sing Sing Penitentiary. His lawyers appealed, but the Court of Appeals turned them down.